Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Michigan Avenue Media and the World of Ink Network. This podcast was founded in 2011 by Marsha Casper Cook and Virginia Grenier. Their focus has always been on helping writers reach their dreams by having informative and entertaining shows. You will also hear the latest information on what's new and exciting in the publishing and marketing industry. And the shows will also cover discussions on screenwriting, audiobooks and movies. New to the shows will be the latest style and trends in fashion, as well as nutrition and how Pinterest can add just the right spark of attention you may need for your projects. So, sit back and relax and enjoy the show. You can find out more information about our shows and being a guest at www.michiganavenuemedia.com. Hi, everybody. It's Marcia Casper-Cook, and Elizabeth and I are doing a show today. And um, those of you that missed the show yesterday, if you did, it's on demand. It was really good. It was on screenwriting and um, all sorts of media. And um, it was Michelle Meek was on it, who is a professor and teaches screenwriting and talks about females in the script writing and, and screen business. It was a very interesting show. And uh, that's on demand, so you can hear it at any time. And um, so I will let Elizabeth give the intro today. And uh, this is going to be a great show, so go ahead. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you? Hi. I'm doing very well. Yeah, we went to the beach this morning, so that was nice. Well, I'm I'm Elizabeth Black, and I write uh, erotica, romance, horror, and dark fiction. And I'm your co-host. So today's guest is Katherine Anderson. She is an award-winning author of two historic mysteries, Hospital Hill and Shadows in the Ward. She was born in 1980 in Western Massachusetts and is a special education teacher. For many years, Kate has worked to painstakingly research and document the insane asylums and state schools in New England, publishing nonfiction books and lecturing on the history of mental illness. So that is our guest for today. Yeah, and she's very interesting, and um, mm-hmm. this will be a very interesting show, and uh, she's got several books out, and she'll talk about that also. So welcome to the show, Catherine. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're very glad to have you. And, oh, yeah, um, we are. It's a very interesting subject. So, Elizabeth, I know Elizabeth has a lot of questions. So oh, yeah. I, I have a have lot questions. of thoughts, but Elizabeth has a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead, I, Elizabeth. <laughs> I want I want to know how how did you get interested in cemeteries and mental hospitals to begin with? Where did it where did this, oh. did this come from? Um, well, I I've loved abandoned buildings since I was a kid. Um, I started exploring back before urban exploration was a thing, long before the invention of the internet. Um, and <laughs> yeah. then then later in my teaching career, I started out at a residential treatment facility for kids with um, mental illness. And around the time that I started at that facility, um, they were getting ready to tear down Northampton State Hospital, which is about 25 minutes north of where I am. <laughs> and a friend of mine asked if I wanted to go and check it out. So we went up to drive around it. Um, the place was absolutely massive. And a couple of 16-year-old kids came up to us and, you know, the whole, oh, are you guys going in? And <laughs> we said no. We were just there to look around. And one of the kids said, oh, that's too bad we know where the tunnels are. And that was it. I followed these kids. They, they could have been axe murderers for all I knew. And I followed them <laughs> right into the tunnels. <laughs> Just went right in the tunnels. I didn't even think twice about it. I, I left, I left my friend standing outside and he's going, wait, you know, I, I should probably go with you. <laughs> but that was the first time I'd ever seen an insane asylum up close. And it was absolutely incredible. So, of course, because I'm a history addict, um, I went home and did as much research as I possibly could and just found out that it was one of so many across the United States, all built on the same architectural plan, all with the same general purpose. Um, And shortly after that, I discovered state schools, which is a whole other animal unto itself. But um, I just started exploring. I couldn't get enough. Um, I traveled as much as I possibly could photographed as many as I could um, and then started writing about them because um, I just I couldn't just get all of that information and not do something with it so I started writing 
and here I am now. <laughs> yeah, there you are. Several, several, well, you have a lot of books later, you know, and uh, I did ask you the question before that you do go out and speak, and because you have a good subject matter that, that puts you good, you know, a good place in the market because they want to know what you did, and it sounds so interesting for all of us that are thinking about all this. We just think about it. We would not do it. Right. Um, I, w- I was mentioning to Elizabeth before that uh, Willow Cross used to do shows with us, and she was a ghost. Um, well, she they, they went on the ghost investigations, and she did go into a lot of these older these places that have been, you know, that are empty, and it was really scary and freaky. But it was, and they mm-hmm. left them the same way. You know, they looked how mm-hmm. they looked 40 years ago, 50 years ago. You know, when you yep. when you go when you went in, how do they look to you? I mean, does it well, still it, look it the same? On scary the, on the place. It depended yeah. on the place. Some of them, <laughs> you walked in and it was a time capsule. It was almost as if people just, you know, they, they locked the doors and they walked away. And in many cases, that's exactly what happened. A lot of these places got abandoned little yeah. by little as as parts of the building became unusable. People migrated, you know, forward in the building. <laughs> it happened at Northampton, it happened at Danvers. They would just clear the building out slowly and push the patients to different parts of the building. So in many cases, there were parts of these hospitals that had actually been abandoned since the 50s and 60s, and they just kept pushing forward out, you know, yeah. until eventually the place was closed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so some of them are, um, like Westboro State Hospital, for example, some of the wards date back to the 1860s. So you're you're standing in the middle of something that was built, you know, a hundred plus years ago. And wow. sometimes it looks at, I mean, you're walking around collapses in the floor. There's, the roof is missing. You know, you turn a corner and you're literally outside because the floor ends. And it's, um, it, it can be a little bit, a little bit scary. <laughs> Yeah, I know because I did them with her. I did them with her. We were on the air, and she was in the room with the investigators, and I and she would come outside, and I, I go, I can't tell what's going on there because I'm on the radio, remember? <laughs> the radio. I said, you have to keep talking to me because I don't know what's going on. You know, and it was weird because they have, you know, the detectors and everything, and then they have stories about it. I think a lot of cities have that where they kept buildings like that going. You know, where oh, yeah. people go in and actually, uh, it's a tourist. You know, not the ones they but, were at, but I, I think they have I've always wanted to go in. I've always wanted to go inside one of those buildings, but I was always afraid I'd end up inhaling asbestos or getting exposed to lead or something like that. And uh, there weren't any around me. I'm not originally from Massachusetts. I'm originally from Maryland. But when I came up here, I heard about Danvers and later Belchertown. And um, yeah. I'd like to ask you, could you tell us a little bit about that? Because you've written about it. Belchertown State mm-hmm. School for the Mentally Retarded. I'd like to know more about, about that building. Okay. Sure. Well, I mean, honestly, I could tell you the um, entire place's history from day one. Um, and that is actually my, my super special announcement. You guys get to find out first before everybody else does. Um, uh, but I, I, I've been researching and writing about Belchertown for a very long time. It was my graduate thesis that I just turned in last month and got my MFA. Um, wow. But next Yay, congratulations. Thank you. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it was um, so exciting, so much fun to do. But next July, my third Images of America book will be coming out, and it is about Belchertown State School. Um, And I'm very excited about it because um, we're working to build a memorial. We're working to save one of the buildings. It's kind of like a really nice time for this book to be coming out. And... um, there's going to be some images in it that no one has ever seen before, wow. ever, because wow. they've been, wow. they've oh, been in the basement be awesome. for years on end. So I am very excited. No, no one knows this yet. You guys are the first ones to find out. That, this is um, great because it's such be... an interesting. It is Thank an interesting you. subject. Yeah. It's so interesting, you know, because yep. <laughs> you know I think people are interested in, like Elizabeth said, you know, people are, would be afraid to do this, you know, because it's not, yeah. you know, you're not going to be doing, you know, because. But I do think, though, as a writer, I miss some of the times, like at the beginning when I wrote, I used to do a little more research than I do now because I've written obviously a couple romantic comedies, but you know, but when I did dramas and my for my screenplays, it was always so interesting to. 
you know, research things. And I think, you know, oh, I yeah. always like when people come on and they're talking about that because it's so interesting, and then that makes you an expert on something that is such a great topic, but you can't really write it well if you don't really do it. You know, you have to oh, yeah. do it. You just can't go, oh, it's yeah. like this, because, and you know what it's like. Yeah. And the research, the research sometimes is the best part, but I think for me, especially yeah. with Belchertown, I discovered Belchertown in 2002, so 17 years ago now. Um, wow. And when I first, when I first went, um, I, the whole place was locked down. We couldn't get in. It was, it was kind of, it was getting late at night. It was, it was getting dark. It was the first snow of the year. And it was, the whole campus was completely silent. And I'd never experienced wow. anything like it before mm-hmm. in my life. It was completely silent. We came back a couple weeks later, and someone had gone through. We don't know if it was a teenager, an explorer, or someone scrapping the buildings for copper and metal. But someone wow. had popped all the, all the locks, all the construction locks on all the buildings. And all of a sudden, these buildings were just wide open. And right. Yeah, I know. That's the other yeah. thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, really, people and have so, to be – they shouldn't really do that because you have to really be careful because, you know, you could think oh, yeah. you're going to be – the stairs are going to be okay, and they're not or something yeah. like yeah. that. Yeah, fall through the floor, oh, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I have been lucky. I have only had a couple a couple of injuries, and they were fairly minor aside from I did break my ankle falling out of a window at Westboro State Hospital. Mm-hmm. But, well, see, that's um, it. See, that's you know, it. Right. <laughs> right. But that was you know. my own fault. That wasn't the building's fault. That was my fault because I'm the clumsiest uh-huh. human being ever. But Well, but yeah, then like, also sometimes know? when you're trying not to fall or trip or do something, that's when you do because in your mind you're thinking, oh, yeah. I'm going to do this, you know. And then, but yeah. you know, and it is scary. It, you know, it's you know. Yeah. I so when you walked in, do you feel things when you're there? Also, I mean, do you feel the presence of anything when you're there? I didn't. I didn't the first few times that I went because I didn't have enough. I didn't have enough knowledge about what right. I was walking into. So my my first mm-hmm. my first couple times at Belchertown, I knew nothing about it. I all I knew was that it was a state school, and <clears throat> I mean it was loaded with abandoned buildings. I mean, this campus was absolutely huge. It's close, it encompasses close to 900 acres worth of land. So, so when, when, did the place, when did the place open? When did the place um, open? It opened, in, it opened technically in 1915, but the farm colony <laughs> opened before the actual physical school. So there was a farm operating from 1915 to 1922, and then the school itself opened in 1922. So there's a main campus. And then down below mm-hmm. it, there's a farm campus. So it's 900 acres in total. Um, but after I started researching and reading about the history of the state school, <laughs> it changed my experiences going there. So Belchertown State School is probably, I'd say, the third most infamous state institution in Massachusetts, Danvers being the first. The Washington yeah, Colonel State I know about School Danvers. is the second. Yeah, yep. the Danvers has the worst reputation. The Walter E. Fernald State School comes in second with all of its human experiments, and then Belchertown's a close third. Um, and when I started reading about Belchertown, the only the only information really available and the only books available were about the time in Belchertown's history when it was at its absolute worst. So um, <laughs> Belchertown is best known as being the state school that caused the closure of many state institutions with a massive lawsuit in the 1970s. And when I say massive lawsuit, I'm talking um, 44 pages worth of complaints about how bad wow. it was. Uh, I, wow. I read about that. It was, that. It was <laughs> 1972. You, I remember yeah, the mention of um, yeah. unsafe conditions, yep. raw sewage rising through a cafeteria drain, toilets in the yep. open, showers with no privacy, really awful, awful yep. stuff. Awful stuff. When when you get to the point where even the superintendent of the school says he will not eat food that comes out of the kitchen, you know that's oh, that's terrible. Oh my god. But yeah. what I what I discovered pretty quickly after reading all of those books about the worst time in Belchertown's history, I realized that it was only a it was only a span of about twenty years in which all of this happened. It was almost like it happened in a vacuum. Because from 1915 yeah. until the late 1950s, Belchertown was a model institution, and their entire purpose was to teach other state schools how to care for people with disabilities. 
the yeah. first superintendent used to come and lecture. The high school that I teach at now, he used to come and lecture at that high school and teach teachers how to work with students with special needs, which yes. is a far cry from when we talk about the 1950s when there were no seats on the toilets and yeah. people were walking oh, off God. and dying yeah. in the yeah. snow. You know, it's a completely no, different world. Yeah. All, it, all it took was one people. person who, you know, one person as a superintendent and a couple of short-sighted people in the Department of Mental Retardation to just ruin it. And they, they really just, cr- it crashed and burned. <laughs> Yeah, well, right. Like, well, right, and that could be early. Yeah, yeah it could be mm-hmm. just like that, right, because once it starts going, it's going, you know, then nobody oh, yeah. starts to care, which is what type of disabilities did, did you find that they, well, that they did then, and how is it, you know, what what type now would they be doing for well, disabilities? Because, <laughs> you know, it, that's a, 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 always a subject matter that nobody really knows about. They don't talk about that too yeah. much. Well, the, the, the range of disabilities that, would have gotten you committed back then is actually really similar to the range of disabilities that we still recognize now. We call them different things. We have much more politically correct terms for yeah. those disabilities. Yeah. yeah. But the way we the way we measure what disability is is completely different. So when you look at some of the children who were sent to state schools back in the 1920s and 30s, they would not be considered disabled now. They might be considered learning disabled, and they might get right. a little bit of support in school. But yeah. other than that, no, there was nothing wrong with them. Um, children with cerebral palsy, children with epilepsy, Down syndrome, muscular dystrophy, any child that couldn't um, couldn't care for themselves the way a in the mainstream in the mainstream yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. exactly or yeah. if parents realized that a child was delayed in some way which meant that they needed uh, they weren't hitting their developmental milestones they would be recommended yeah. for state school but originally the point, whole point of a state school was to give children skills so they could then take home with them so that they could get a job and eventually live independently mm-hmm. That right. kind of stopped in the 1950s when it became a warehousing operation. So yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like we started off great, then had this horrible dark period, and now we're back to where we're supposed to be with the majority of people with disabilities are in the mainstream. They're educated in public mm-hmm. schools. They're, they have jobs. They live independently. And they're contributing members of society, and in many cases, which is wonderful, which is really children. good, which is really wonderful. Absolutely, you know, uh, it, it really is. You know, and a lot of schools do have, you know, uh, programs which so yep. they can, you know, share experiences with other kids. You know, and because some of the disabilities Absolutely. can be, I mean, just because you have a disability doesn't mean you have to be like like in the old, you know, in those days, just put in a place where you're not going to learn anything or you're not going to, you know, advance. Exactly. So, and it's, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, my sister taught special ed for years and years and years, and, you know, in a lot of the the schools in Chicago, which it was pretty intense, but they did, you know, there was a lot of, you know, people don't realize exactly what type of child is in there, and it's not just, you know, uh, what people might think. So I think that there's the guidelines are, you know, it depends probably on the state. Is that true, probably, of what happens? Yes, all special, yeah. we have federal special education laws, but then there are also state-level special education laws, and the states yeah. have the flexibility to interpret them as they see fit, and it does definitely have an impact on what programs look like. I mean, Massachusetts leads the way in special education. We have done since the 1920s, um, so it, our programs are heads and tails above a lot of the programs in the country. Yeah, what do you think, find in the programs? Like, what what kind of treatments were were available in the beginning, and what's available now? So, in the beginning, the the main focus was vocational work. Most of the mm-hmm. state schools, the the purpose was to make sure that that children could go home and not be a burden to their families. The yeah. the purpose was to keep keep families from needing welfare assistance of any sort, whether that be welfare as we know it today or any kind of public assistance. They didn't want families ending up in the almshouse or the poorhouse because they had children that they couldn't care for. And in many cases, that's what used to happen. So state schools were meant to give these children vocational skills to help them with things like life skills, dressing themselves, um, personal hygiene, things like that. And they did have classes. They learned 
to read and write to the best of their abilities. <clears throat> they had kindergarten classes. I mean, this in the early days, the state school was a very well-rounded special education program. Um, they Back then, there was no such thing yet as occupational or physical therapy the way we know it today, but they got the kids outside. They had them playing games, learning how to play on teams, learning how to take turns, mm-hmm. um, you know, spending time in the fresh air, going down on learning the farm, doing work on the farm. Sort of thing. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And a lot of the kids mm-hmm. were learning their math skills by doing everyday tasks like working on the farm or working in mm-hmm. one of the vocational shops that they had set up, which we still do today. We still have a great emphasis on um, vocational work. Obviously, we're not using children to do the job that an adult should be doing, but we do right. still emphasize vocational skills. And, you know, it's a great social skills activity for kids. So, <laughs> In many ways, a lot has changed, but in many ways, a lot has stayed the same. We kept the really good stuff and just tweaked it to make it make sense for, you know, our current uh, <laughs> understanding of people with disabilities. Right, and I think, I mean, that's the other thing. I think people, you know, they really don't understand. You know, I, I uh, volunteered. Yeah. I was, in one of my books, Love Changes. There was a child with Down syndrome, and I wanted to understand more. You can read things, but I went to um, I volunteered, and I went in the lunch program, and I stayed for several hours at the in the morning to see. You know, really, I my question was, why is it that some parents just leave their children and don't want to take them home at all? You know, and I I mm-hmm. wanted to understand why this what the character did that. So I thought the only way I could do that is to see what really happens. And unfortunately, there are a lot of parents that do that. They don't want any mm-hmm. part of it, which is really so sad. You know, um, they yeah. don't come to see their children. They you know, and they just want nothing to do. And it's really that is a very difficult thing. And mm-hmm. the teachers were very loving, and it was really good, you know, to be there because you can understand it more. It was really hard writing that book for me because I, it, it came over me kind of like, you know, because it was when you're actually there, you're seeing this, and you just don't understand why people do this, but I was trying mm-hmm. to, you know. And I think that a lot of people don't know anything about this. And, you know, and I think in the schools, I think it's really good to have challenged children. Like I know I went to my um, – about grammar school I went to recently, and I was so surprised and so happy to see the diversity and challenged children there. They're now with mixed in and doing activities with others, and it, and being in the school, you know, and with diversity. I thought it was wonderful. I was so proud of our the school, <laughs> and then I found out later it was a blue ribbon school because it was different years ago. It wasn't like that. And I, I'm mm-hmm. so happy to see it was such a nice school. They had a cafeteria now. They changed a lot of things for today, you know. And um, I think that's the schools need to work on that a lot because I think, you know, I, I can see that there are a lot of places, you know, are different. So I, and I do know it is depending on the state. But what you're saying is really important because you know, I see in the grocery stores there's a lot of challenged kids working now, and I think that's really good, mm-hmm. you know. and But you also mm-hmm. see people not having patience. You know, they have to wait a few minutes. They should, you know. But yeah. <laughs> you see, you know, it's true, though. You could see that they're annoyed yeah. and thinking, like, really? You know, um, because I think it's really good that this has happened now. So things have changed in that way. Absolutely. You know, for, you know. So, so I think well, you're probably I'm always you're teach. probably always learning something. Now yeah. I would assume well, that this is I, just never ending. Yeah, but when I was a teenager in the 1970s, I did volunteer work at some state mental hospitals, and um, uh, we had art therapy. There was music therapy. Uh, mm-hmm. The kids would go on. Um, well, I think one reason that I was able to work well with them was that they were almost my age, so I could really right. relate to them. And we would go on. We went on field trips. I mean, this wasn't a place where people were warehoused. It wasn't anything like that. Right. Yeah. And this this is back right. in the 1970s. And I had, yeah. I had, it was a really good experience for me. I think it is a good experience for people. And I think, you know, the fact that you've done this all these years, you're a special ed teacher, and, and write books and do all of these things, you can, you know, um, put this all together in a good way. That's why the speaking engagements, you're not just writing a book. You've also done it. Right. You know, which is always good, you know, because I think it's yeah. great knowledge helps other people learn things, 
you know. Uh, are there things you think should be changed? How do you feel about that? Are there things that need changing or upgrading? As far as, as, far as um, folks with disabilities, no, we do, we do an amazing job great. with caring That's for folks with disabilities and giving them opportunities. Mental health, on the other hand, has so far to go still. Our, our yeah. mental health system in the United States is probably, I, I can say from my experience, probably one of the worst, um, even though we are, I mean, we lead, we lead the world in, um, you know, supposedly in healthcare, and yet we just can't get mental health care right no matter how hard we try. What do you think could be changed? I mean, it really is difficult because, you know, you just sometimes people really aren't aware that people have a lot of mental illness until they ha- there's a problem. So I think well, and you that's know, part of it. The yeah. awareness, the education, the yeah. I mean, we're we're just getting to a point now in you know in 2019 where you know students feel comfortable going to their teachers and saying, "I have anxiety and this is what I need in order to be productive during my day," or "I suffer from depression and I need this yeah. kind of support." And even then, yeah, some to be of the a, kids are still very afraid to talk about it. And, yeah. you know, we, well, always been a big we, cultiv- yeah. Yeah. we cultivated a society that was afraid to talk about mental health. And in reality, when you consider <laughs> mental health treatment over the years and how it's changed, we're, when asylum first came about in Massachusetts, for specific example, we created our first asylum and our first public hospital all at the same time. We were still trying to understand physical medicine, and here we are trying to then understand mental health care. And at least physical medicine, you, you, could, you could see that somebody's bone was broken. You could see that they were ill, and there were mm-hmm. ways to treat them. But how do you treat something that you, first of all, can't see? And second of all, I can line up four people in a row and say that they each have the same diagnosis of, say, bipolar 1. But in each one of those people, the diagnosis is going to look completely different, and it's going to affect them in completely different ways, and it's going to affect their functioning in completely different ways. So it's very difficult to take something that you can't see and that you have to treat very individually. It's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. You can't just say, all right, well, here's the drug for bipolar and it should work for everybody because that's not going to happen and it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in a, in a, you know, in many ways, that's what we have done for many years is we have tried to make it a one size fits all kind of thing. <laughs> but we and you also, can't, yeah. US, we're up against, we're up against insurance companies. And, yeah. you know, when you have an insurance company making decisions for someone and saying, well, we will only cover this many days of inpatient or outpatient mental health mm-hmm. care. We will only cover this medicine, but not this medicine, even though the other one's the one you need. It's very difficult <laughs> to offer the range of treatment that's needed um, for people to be successful in mental health treatment. Um, it, and it's frustrating, especially you know, I spent so many years working in residential treatment facilities and later in juvenile lockups. And to see the limitations we place on people with mental illness is just, it's unreal. And we are, you know, society in general is a big part of the problem. Well, does, um, do some of the problems go back to uh, the 1980s when Ronald Reagan deinstitutionalized me- uh, mental health care? Does a That's lot of it go of back it, to really- that? Yeah. Believe it or not, deinstitutionalization started in the 60s with JFK. Um, he was the first one to create the concept of deinstitutionalization because his sister had been right. lobotomized, yes. not successfully. Yes. So in the 60s, there was a big push for community mental health treatment. So Kennedy said, okay, cool, let's do this. Um, they put it all on paper. It looks like a great idea. We start closing the mental hospitals. We provide community treatment. We do these group homes, we staff them, and everybody is going to be happy. But the problem was there wasn't the funding to back it up, and there wasn't the preparation. So they started closing yeah. these mental hospitals. When you consider, um, you know, Danvers State Hospital at the peak of its census had close to 3,000 people in it. But go down south to, say, Milledgeville, Georgia, where at the peak of its census they had 11,000. You're wow. closing these hospitals 
and you're pushing people out into community treatment that is not ready for them. They were housed right. in neighborhoods where, where the residents didn't want those community homes because they didn't know what was going to happen there. Houses yeah. burned down. People, people choked to death because they weren't being supervised. And in many cases, mm. like Northampton State Hospital, in the first year that it was closed, the police logged so many complaints of patients trying to get back into the hospital because they were miserable out in the community. There wasn't enough support for them. Well, so it's we so had sad. Great- I mean, it really is sad when you think about that, you know, yeah. having nowhere to go. Yeah. So now, I mean, we, you know, we fast, we fast forward to 2019, and our top three mental health care centers in the United States are prisons because the mm, prison population yeah. has swelled with folks who are mentally ill, especially in states uh, where they have yeah. a three-strikes a three law where the third time that you commit a crime, you're automatically in jail. But when you consider yeah. someone who's mentally ill – you know, someone who is off their medication, they go and they steal food because they're homeless and they get nailed by a cop and they push that cop because they're hallucinating actively and they can't, they can't discern between reality and their hallucination. Yeah. If they do that, if they do that three times, they're going to prison. So then we uh, had to. Which is uh, not a solution, which is not a solution for, no, you know. Not at all. No. The state of Ohio spent millions of dollars restructuring its prison system just to be able to accommodate the the massive number of mentally ill inmates. And when you think about that versus we closed all of these institutions because we had we had gone so wrong, but yeah. now we don't have enough mental health care, and we're now restructuring prisons instead get your mental health care in a cell instead of a yeah, room at a hospital. Yeah, that's right. And there's and then there's no chance of them even being able to go out because it's just and they there's get exposed no to things that they yeah. shouldn't either. I mean, they're exposed yeah. to people that they shouldn't probably be exposed to and pick up bad habits. Yep. You know, from them. Yep. And when they yep. sh- wouldn't have had that. It's you know, I th- I think a lot of these things, you know, um, so your reader, okay, when, when you go to places, what do they ask you? I mean, what are their questions that they want to know when they're, after reading your books and how they feel about them? Because it is a different subject that a lot of people, because you, you know, what do they ask you when you're there, if you, if you go on, you know, speaking engagements with your books? What kind of discussion do they want? Well, it depends on the audience. When I first started out, when I published my first book in 2006, it was straight nonfiction. Um, It was a collected history of all the state hospitals and state schools in New England. And by and large, my crowd was always people who had worked in the field, um, nurses, psychologists, psychiatrists, former patients, former staff members, people who already had a lot of knowledge about the field and just wanted the connection of the history. Um, So for a very long time, it was the same crowd. Their questions were always the same. It was always about kind of the evolution of mental health care. The big question was always whether or not I thought asylum should still exist. Did we still need state institutions on any level? But then um, when I realized I was getting the same group of people over and over again, that's when I wrote my first novel. Um, I wrote Hospital Hill (laughs) a few years after I wrote the nonfiction book, and I found that I, it drew a completely different crowd. Um, people were a lot more willing to come and talk about mental health when they were talking about it through the lens of a cozy mystery. Um, yeah, yeah. Because Hospital mm-hmm. Hill is 100% historically accurate, except for the, the mystery that I wove into it, the characters I created. Right. Um, yeah. But everything else is you're, you're learning about – the history of Northampton State Hospital and mental health care while you're reading this little mystery. So people would come in and they would be much more comfortable asking questions about mental health care and um, sharing their stories too. I mean, a lot of, a lot of my book events are, (laughs) I, I would say most of it is audience driven. I talk for a little while, but most of it is questions and folks who have stories to share. My very first, book signing um, a, a thousand years ago. Um, I, <laughs> I was talking about Belchertown State School, and this gentleman stood up and said, I was at Belchertown for most of my life. Wow. And he talked about some of the things. I, I mean, I wasn't even needed anymore. I, I could have sat yeah. down um, mm. and 
everyone was riveted. Um, and I got a chance to actually talk to the gentleman. His name was Donald Dickus. Um, and <laughs> he told me some of the stories and he was also in the process of writing his, his memoir of life at Belchertown state school with another author, Edward Zakowski, who is a really good friend of mine. Um, their book came out, it's called you'll like it here. And it's Donald's story about his time at Belchertown state school. <clears throat> and it's things like that, that, drive the talks that I do is when people show up and they talk about their experiences, whether it be at a state school or at a state hospital, working there, living there, seeking treatment, inpatient, outpatient. Sometimes people just, they want to talk and they want to connect and they want to talk in a safe space. And since I'm already kind of laying it all out there, it makes people much more comfortable and <laughs> they're more willing to, to ask the hard questions and questions that for some people and they're sharing they and, you know and then sharing mm-hmm. is yeah. hard, you know and they're sharing so <laughs> I mean, I mean what better way to learn about things is by people that have yeah. been there done that you know I mean it's, exactly. you know I mean that's well, you know I was I was at a graduation and um I was at a graduation and then uh, there were some kids that came up and it, it was a it was a school that was a little different than other schools it was um was actually it was pretty much mainstream but there were also some kids that didn't really like to do homework and they didn't like this mm-hmm. and that and so the at the graduation one of the kids and I it will probably remain in my head forever because it was a young girl she got up and she uh, the principal called her up to talk because she wanted to and she shared her story and it was like almost you know you can't forget when people that are young that are 18 and they're saying I'm was very anxious, I didn't want to do my homework, Mm -hmm. and those are problems that people don't understand, that Mm -hmm. there are kids out there that there's nothing wrong with them. They just don't, you know, they're anxious, Mm -hmm. and she said she was anxious because her father had been in jail, and then when she said that, the room was, you know, and she was, you know, her life had changed, and then her mother had a a young baby, and then she ended up getting pregnant, and she mm-hmm. was she doesn't have the baby yet, but it was so I mean watching her and hearing her with such honesty, how could you forget a story like that? And she was so thankful for the teachers for helping her graduate gram a high school, and it was like right. so unbelievable listening to that because here's an eighteen year old talking about how anxious she is and how you know what anxiety has done to her and you know i think people just yeah. don't look at those things and see when kids have no. you know marital the parents are divorced or they're not in this case her father was in jail or, so yeah in jail they're not, yeah. Like, these kids were raised regular just the same yep. as everybody else but they had issues in their life that made them become this way and everybody says oh i'm stressed out stressed out but really there are people that honestly have big stress issues which causes mm-hmm. all this so i mean Absolutely. and it's nice to know that there's a school that was helping them get through it because uh yep. some schools you know, they some of the counselors they're not that great because they're always afraid that they're going to get sued. Now that's a big problem. Right. If you go too far, then somebody's parent can sue them. Yeah, and it's, it's difficult. Like, anyway, it, we have, have society, people talk about what kind of. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, it's okay. Go ahead. Oh, um, no, I just wanted to know if uh, you know like the people you talk to have uh, have they told you what kinds of treatments work and what kinds of treatments don't? I mean, is there like a common theme to what they um, talk about? It, no, not really. I mean, the common theme now, obviously, is, is medication. Most of the folks that, mm-hmm. um, you know, come come to my talks now, obviously, are experiencing modern-day mental health care. So it's mostly about medication. Every yeah. once in a while, you'll get, you'll get someone from an older generation who will say, yeah, I had shock therapy, um, oh, but yeah. very few people... Oh. You know, mm-hmm. very few people that are alive now are, are old enough to remember things like hydrotherapy and cold packs and lobotomy. I mean, we're 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 so far removed from that generation of treatment that now yeah. most people either mention electroshock therapy or um, or medication. Obviously, our first go to, our first line of defense for mental health care is medication, and <clears throat> electroshock therapy is making a huge comeback, if you will, if you want to call it that. Um, but it is considered kind of a last resort for folks who aren't responding to mm-hmm. other treatments and who have severe clinical depression. Yeah. 
what a society well, we have that there's so many people and that have this, you know, and I think that that is something, you know, you hear a lot of people on TV, they're talking about it a lot, and they need to address that because that would solve a lot of other issues that we have if they would. Well, I don't know that, know. The, that the, the numbers so much have changed is that our ability to recognize and diagnose has changed. Yeah. You know, right. when you look mm-hmm. at a lot of a lot of mental health care now, the shift the the, num- the numbers of adults diagnosed with mental illness is probably relatively the same as it would have been if we had the same diagnostic skills back in the 1800s. It's the number of children diagnosed with mental health issues that has risen. But, you know, to Marsha's point, we're, we're living in a society where, you know, as a teacher, I walk into a classroom and I know that at least three of my kids are worried about whether or not the electricity is going to be on when they get home, yeah. mm-hmm. whether or not yeah. they're going to have heat or hot water, whether yeah. or not there were enough benefits this month for mom to actually be able to get food, whether or not there will be somebody home when they get home to let them in. Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> we have a different environment that like we're growing up in. It's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You have to Absolutely. have the basic needs met before you can go any higher than that. And worrying about the electric bill, if the heat's going to be turned off, is something pretty basic. Exactly. Yes. For, for young kids to be the ones who are responsible for worrying about that, and you're carrying yep. that school yeah. with you, yeah. so that's your priority, your priority of survival, yeah. you know, whether or not, you know, and for some of the kids in some of the neighborhoods that I've worked in over the years, you know, they're wondering whether or not they're going to make it home from school in one piece. You know, they're hiding yeah. weapons out in the bushes because they know they need to protect mm-hmm. themselves on the way home from school. You know, we well, I live in Chicago. I live in Chicago, so, uh, you know, this is <laughs> a huge issue here. And my sister did teach yeah. – um, in uh, one of the worst areas here, you know, um, and, you know, but they were very, they were great with the teachers because, you know, the guards would walk them to the door and everything like that, but, you know, and it's progressed so much, you know, I mean, they talk about shootings, I think we've had 50 here on the, you know, it's not, it's on the south side, but it still affects the the way people view Chicago, you know, and it's, it, and it really is, you know, and what you're saying is true. I mean, walking home, just a simple thing of, like, kids joking around. They can't joke around and walk. They're just looking around to see if they're going to be shot. And it's mm-hmm. really traumatic for them. And so you're right about that, that when they go to school, it's like they're worried about walking home or, you know. Right. Will something be happening? Sort of uh, it, yeah. That needs to be changed for kids because, you know, kids are the future. And you know we right. have to and worry about that. That's where education—that's where education plays the biggest role—is that mm-hmm. we are their safe space. We are yeah. the place where kids can come and say, "I'm dealing with this right now. I'm feeling anxious. I'm dealing with yeah. depression," and we are their safe space. And and originally, that's what <laughs> institutions were supposed to be. They were supposed to be those safe spaces. And yeah. now we've just—you know—we're working on making it. <laughs> a community effort and we're working on making it something that people are comfortable talking about. <laughs> and it's, <coughs> excuse me, you know, it, we, we still have a ways to go, but you can see the effects of the past mental health treatment and disability treatment. You can see how it's affected, how we, how we handle situations now. I mean, it's, it's very, very clear how education has evolved <laughs> Well, the In medications are a godsend. Yeah, I was going to say the medications yeah. are a godsend. I'm, I, I'm, I have bipolar too, and I wasn't able to respond to any medication until the SSRIs came along. So Abilify mm-hmm. and Latuda work on me, whereas nothing before. So I was just right. going up and down and up and down. And when I finally found the right medication, I, I can, I function like anybody else. But um, right. I mean, I know there are people that are against the medications because they say they're poisonous. But I, I'm like, no, we really need this. Well, right. If people need medications, that's another thing. Kid, people should understand that you know when people need medicine, they need it. You know, and it's right. you know, I like to say, oh, I don't want to take medicine, but if it gets you to a place where you can have a good life, why not? I mean, this isn't mm-hmm. right. this is really yeah. bad that people just put such well, a stigma gonna, on things. You're not going to sit there with strep throat and not take. Penicillin. Mm-hmm. You're not going to, you know, right. have cancer right. and and not get chemotherapy. So why would you say, well, you have a mental illness, you shouldn't take medicine yeah. because it's poison. Well, technically, when you think mm-hmm. about it, a lot of the stuff that we put into our bodies for other ailments is poison. But it it is it's poison that works 
the way it's supposed to. I mean, well, yeah. way because you know, then you can function. I mean, you know, I mean, there's no. What's the sense exactly. then of having a horrible life when you can have a good life? I mean, it doesn't make any and sense it, when people are like, "Oh, I don't want to take medicine." I worked for doctors for 20 years. Well, you know, people. You have to give, like you said, penicillin. You need to have things. You need to have. Well, as with the immunizations, you need to have these things. You know, I mean, right. this is the way it works. You know, you but want healthy people. On the other side of that conversation, though, is, you know, Elizabeth is one of the lucky people that has found a medication that works and hopefully has very few side effects. But you get some individuals who try these medications and may try every medication under the sun, and the side effects are horrific for some people. It all depends on your your chemical makeup in your body and what the mental illness is doing to you. Because every mental illness to every person is going to be different. It's Creating and that's why you need to have hospitals, right? And the hospitals are open. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of the TV shows now are covering issues that it's not just playing around here. They cover issues by, you know, saying that, you know, people that are addicts, they can come in and they can get treatments. You know, so the shows are trying to portray that we need to do this for people, you know, and it's not mm-hmm. just all fiction when you're watching the shows because this is reality mixed in mm-hmm. with right. it, you know, right. which, yeah, is why you're, which, which is why your book, what you're saying, you yeah. mixed reality and your historic together, and that was a good match for you. Right. And, you know, that's what people, but it, it's also, you know, if, if you talk about it a lot and you think about all these things, yes, they have to show these things because if one or two people are watching and say, oh, well, maybe I should go get treatment, that's good. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. Right. Right. It's still better odds than, you know, if you're not talking about it at all. Right. Exactly. And some people are afraid to, you know. Right. And when they, you know, and they don't want to because it does, you know, it has, a, a, some people it has a bad effect on their personal and private life, if they actually say right. what's wrong with them, they don't want to say it, mm-hmm. and that isn't always a good thing either. You know, but yeah. if they announce, at least if they, at least if they face it themselves and get help, that's a good thing. Exactly. You know, and so that's what you do. So that's very interesting. I um, hope. I hope that's what I do. I hope that. I hope. Well, that's I think I, it sounds like it because you know you're not you're not just coming out. I mean, you have degrees. I mean, you also a special ed teacher. You know, I mean, it's not like you're just making it up here. You you've already had right. training. You right. know, and so I that's always best. You know, it's always best to have that <laughs> when you are, you know, talking about an issue, and it's a big one, right? A huge issue. Exactly. I mean, everybody knows about it, and probably somebody has it in their family. It's not something oh, yeah. that just five families have. It could be 50 families, and you don't know it. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, but when there's help out there, it's a good thing. And that's probably why they're asking you questions when they come and oh, see absolutely. you and talk about it, because, you know, they're, it's good. I mean, I think that's a wonderful thing. You know, that people are coming out and asking those kind of questions and talking and maybe helping somebody that's in the audience that's afraid to say something. Yeah, and I think what what makes it even better, especially here in Massachusetts, is um, over the years, because I've done this for so long and established myself in so many ways, um, I've had the opportunity to meet and work with a lot of individuals with the Department of Mental Health who are just... That's great. They're so happy that I'm doing what I'm doing and that oh, um, I get invited, like I got in, I get invited regularly to the Danvers State Hospital Cemetery Memorial Service and people seeing um, everyone interacting with the Department of Mental Health people also helps break down that wall because a lot of folks are afraid of the bureaucracy. They don't really know that famous yeah. person who's on the other end of their benefits and for them to see the Department of Mental Health caring so deeply about the history and about the future of mental health care, that also helps to break down some of the stigma and <laughs> help normalize the conversation in, in so many ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the most important is that there's the conversation, which is a good thing, you know, and yeah. which means that it's getting out there. You know, and that's important because, you know, if yeah. you don't talk about it, that's not going to help anybody, you know, that needs right. it. You know, and um, I think, Elizabeth, what did you have a question about the cemetery? I know you were interested in that. I know you said that. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to yeah. know um, no, a couple of things. I wanted to know what are some of the most fascinating cemeteries you visited and some of the symbols on the gravestones. Um, they, they have specific meanings, and I wanted to know a little bit about those meanings on the gravestones. So for me, my I've always loved cemeteries from a from an architectural point of view. I love um, I love going through cemeteries and just seeing the craftsmanship in some of the monuments. Um, my favorite is actually right here in Springfield, um, <laughs> the Pine Street Cemetery, which is it's it's not that's not its actual name. It's the Springfield Cemetery, but everybody calls it the Pine Street Cemetery. Um, and there is one grave that I have loved since I was a kid. I was also a very creepy child. Um, this didn't just happen overnight. <laughs> like, oh, my God. I, but, I can't say that I've done this or want to do yeah, this. My, my favorite gravestone is that of a very prominent real estate broker in the city of Springfield. His gravestone is a big granite mansion. And all his children are little tiny houses um, around him. And the um, above the door, the inscription says, um, in mansions above. That's always been my absolute favorite gravestone um, ever since oh, I was a kid. Uh, yeah, I loved it. Um, <laughs> but most of my experience since has been with state hospital cemeteries, which is, it's a whole different world. It's, it's so, um, you know, you look at these beautiful cemeteries, again, the the fact that that particular monument was so personal that I could look up this guy's name, find out, oh, he was a real estate agent. He had this many kids. He was married this long. He lived on this street in Springfield. But you walk into a state hospital cemetery, and the only thing you could find is a tiny little numbered marker, and you have no idea who that person is. You don't know uh, their name, but, when they were born, yeah. when they died, who their family was, oh, where that's, they that's, lived, that's what they bad. enjoyed. It's a whole different whole different world. In some cases, um, there was one, um, Northampton State Hospital is an example. Um, their, their particular cemetery, it's essentially a potter's field. So it's everyone whose family didn't claim them when they passed were buried there on the state hospital mm-hmm. ground. And over time, the markers sank into the grass. And for many, many years, the cemetery was completely unidentifiable. The same thing happened with Danvers. The the Danvers Cemetery was completely obliterated because no one was taking care of it until someone walking their dog, Pat Deegan was walking her dog in the 90s. Um, she's a huge mental health advocate. And she stumbled on a couple of the gravestones, literally stumbled on them, and called oh. the Department of Mental Health and said, why are you not doing something about this cemetery? What is going on here? Um, so most of these cemeteries, you know, these people have been buried there for you know, close on. Yeah, you know, they have years. they have a lot of those in Chicago. That there's one in right. particular that the the gravestones are, and somebody did get killed because the gravestone fell over on a young child because they okay. really were not. You know, they don't take care of it, they and they they and those stones too. eventually yeah. could have a problem. You know, over yep. hundreds yeah. of years or whatever. You know, I'm going to have to. I should introduce you to Fran Lewis, who's also a blog talk host, and uh, she uh, does books about voices from the grave. And uh, that's. Oh, wow. She's got, yeah, well, yeah, she talks for the people that have died and tells stories about that. Because, uh, yeah, she would like listening to you, and you would enjoy <laughs> well, her. I will say, too, because. One of my absolute favorite books is Lauren Rhodes' book, um, 199 Cemeteries to See Before You Die. If I ever get the chance to do a bucket list trip, as as much as my husband will probably um, go crazy if I try to do it, I I want to fit some of those cemeteries (laughs) into my list. It's not your everyday vocation, you know, a vacation. No, uh, no, you know, but I, but you know, but that's what you, that's what you're interested in, you know. But it is, you know, when you do go to a cemetery. You you look at the gravestones. You can't help but it do that, and you yeah. just you do wonder, you know. And a lot of times, people, you know, that are in let's say nursing homes. I know a lot of times people in nursing homes. The nurses come to funerals because they like to hear about the person the way they were before yeah. they had like Alzheimer's mm-hmm. yep. or something. Where the, and because they know that the person had a different life, they didn't come, you know, to life Absolutely. this way. You know, and so I think those are all different things that people think. So, I mean, you know, and you are incorporating all of this in your lifestyle, you know. So, luckily, your husband will go along with you on that. He will. He will. He's he's great. He's a huge supporter of everything I do, no matter how creepy it gets. As long as 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 I'm not bringing dead things into the house, he's happy. Uh, Okay, yeah. 
But he, had, he, he draws a firm, firm line there. So as long as it's alive and breathing, it can come in the house. But, um, you know. Are you superstitious? So, I mean, are you superstitious at all? Are you superstitious? Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not. I, um, I have so many things in my house. It's funny because when people come over and they see the collection of the things that, you know, I have from different state hospitals and institutions. And they always ask me, aren't you afraid that you're bringing something home with you? And yeah, um, See, I'm so superstitious. Tell, that's, always, why I'm, oh, that's why I'm that's asking you. That's why I'm asking you. I always tell this one story um, before they were tearing down Worcester state hospital. Um, I brought home a porcelain doorknob from a patient room and I put it on the door in my apartment because um, I'm fairly handy. I was able to switch out yeah. the doorknob. Um, and I didn't think anything of it until I got a cat. And he fell in love with that doorknob. Um, he oh. would sit there and he would talk to it. And he'd look around like he was watching something. And then he'd stand up and he'd touch the doorknob. Wow. And he had, a different vo- he had a different voice for the doorknob than he did for anything Oh, my God. Um that's a, so that's a story I, to run. I used to tell that story to, to creep people yeah. out. Um, yeah, that's, but you know, because no, I am very. That's why I'm asking because I think the thought of it. I mean, you know, bringing you know, it in the house, you know, or you know. Well, I, I think I, I think for me, it feels more like bringing home a piece of um, that history and a piece of that memory, as if I'm bringing mm-hmm. home something that, you know, otherwise, when you think about these houses been getting forgotten. torn down. They yeah. just they bury everything, so yep. it's almost like those people getting buried once again. These are the things they used when they were at the hospital. These are the things they touched every day that you know perhaps mm-hmm. was the only item that they were attached to. You know, if it was something like you know, I found things like toothbrushes and you know wow. bottles of shampoo and things like that. You know that those were personal possessions at one time, and to know that <laughs> you know <clears throat> when these things get turned under or they get thrown in the dump it is kind of yet another act of those things getting discarded that person getting discarded so sometimes Mm -hmm. it's nice to be able to look around and say well you know I saved this this thing that someone touched and someone used and you hope that you know (laughs) you you maybe saved a memory somewhere along the way I guess that's a good way to look at it (laughs) certainly someone like me right yeah, I'm writing, I'm, writing it, I'm writing that down. Save a memory because I like that thought. Yeah, because yeah, I, you just can't help some things that we are, we are who we are, and a lot of times we yeah. are the same way we were when we were children, whether we like to believe that or oh, not. Yeah. And it, it appears that you I, were. <laughs> you you started out that of, way. Uh, well, at least one of the buildings at uh, Danvers State Mental Hospital was being has been turned into apartments. So there's, you know, you yeah. see the facade, and then you're you're reminded of, you know, what what this place used to be and how the people had been treated. So I mean, yeah. it's been torn down, but the memory is not completely lost. Absolutely. Right. I saw I some. Mean, I saw you... some of your reviews. Some of your reviews were relating to that. <laughs> they yeah. That they, yeah. They're well, happy that there's a memory there. Yeah. It, it's yeah. It, it's, yeah, you have to. It is what you know. We all have different feelings, but it's so interesting to talk to you. I mean, we were thrilled that you came on the show. I hope you come on again, and um, then we should get more into these other things because this is a. I mean, you know, these are interesting things because these are things that you know people like to hear because there's a lot of people out there that feel that way, you know. And sometimes yeah. it it it's interesting to you know how a conversation turns from one thing and goes to the next. Certainly on my show, because as I said to Elizabeth, I said, <laughs> well, we'll stick to a subject and we we'll go everywhere else. But that's yeah. so much fun then, you know, because now we know all about yeah. you as a child and that's how you were. <laughs> Well, I think, I think the coolest part about all of it is that, you know, I, I started I started all of this as urban exploration. I started this as a checking out abandoned buildings, and then it, it morphed into reading and learning, and then it morphed into writing and sharing. And when mm-hmm. I do when I do book events, it's really cool to look out at the collection of people sitting in front of me and realize that there are there are some young urban explorers in the crowd. There are some older urban explorers. There are <laughs> readers. There, there are writers. There are photographers. There are painters, artists, you know, former patients, former staff, like I said. I mean, people from, from all over are sitting in the same room, and in many cases, it, you know, you end up 
having these great conversations. I have a really good friend, um, Larry Smith, who created this incredible scale model of Danvers State Hospital that um, he's brought to a couple of my events. And just watching people, you know, crowd around this thing and talk to Larry not only about the creation of the model, but you're looking at a model of a building that no longer exists. And Larry has the details down to the graffiti that was spray painted on the the pavement mm-hmm. um, at the time, the things that, that were written on the doors. I mean, you get, you know, your covers, just, actually your covers on your books are really good, especially the ones with all those nurses and <laughs> nurses. I mean, they are, they're really oh, good. Yeah. I put them out all over and I'm looking at them because you can, these are, you know, you just feel the story because you can feel it oh, by yeah. your covers. <laughs> oh yeah. And it, that's, that's another part of the whole thing is because then you're bringing in the people who have maintained these historical archives. You know, these books wouldn't be possible without people who recognize yep. the historical um, mm-hmm. Significance, yeah. of these mm-hmm. things because people used to toss these things in the trash. But then you take a look at the Danvers book. The Danvers book wouldn't have happened without John Archer, who literally built part of his house out of the remnants of Danvers State Hospital. His house, he has a Danvers room. It is, it's literally one wow. of the towers. You know, and for people that, that become that invested, my, my second book, my Westboro book, um, that's coming out in July wouldn't have happened without um, there was a wonderful historical archive at the library. Um, this gentleman, Anthony Baver, he was amazing. Just let me in his space. He literally let me take over his office and scan pictures for like four hours. Wow. Um, you know, wow. And, and, yeah. It was nice. Wow. Oh, yeah. Terrific. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you well. know, and <laughs> just the fact that there are people out there that recognize the historical importance of these things. It's the only way that this, these histories can survive. I mean, the Belchertown State School book that's going to come out next July wouldn't, there, there's absolutely no way it would have happened because the, the historical archive of Belchertown State School is so small because of its horrible history that everything that um, will be in the book only exists because one man, Don LeBrecht, who worked for the Department of Developmental Services, was a history hoarder. And people like that are the only, the only way these conversations can continue. Yes, I write the book. I put the pictures together. But I'm not the one who saved them, and I'm not the one who lived it. I wasn't there. These right. other people who, who were smart enough well, to say, Well, that's the only way we're no, going to know about history important. and things that happened. Yeah. Right. That's how, that's how it is, later. you know. Yeah. Right. And, it, and, you know, it's, it's so in, this has really been very interesting. I thank you so much for coming on. And as always, Elizabeth always has, has the best guest that she decides. And I always say, yes, fine, that's good. I'll be happy. Because it's so interesting. This is something we've not talked about before. So it's very interesting. And, and I could uh, talk about it for weeks my favorite well good then we'll have you on again we will definitely have you on again and you know this this is a live this is a live broadcast but it's on demand forever i mean there it's on youtube itunes i mean and it's Mm -hmm. all over the place and it's always out on the sites and where can they find you so if they were looking for you i have it on here your your books are on amazon it's on our show page but is there anywhere else you want to talk about where they can find you um no i mean my books like i said my books are all on amazon okay Um, and um, I also have Facebook pages for the for the books. So Danvers, Belchertown, and Westboro all have their own pages. Um, so anybody who wants more information about specific individual locations can find the Facebook pages that go with those locations. Um, and. Uh, I'm sure there will be people that want it because this is a very interesting discussion. Elizabeth, where Absolutely. can they find you? Uh, let me find me on Facebook. I'm Elizabeth Black, and um, I'm on Blogspot at elizabethablack.blogspot.com. You know, and one more quick thing. If, uh, I have to say about Ramsey next week. We have to say about our show next week. Oh, okay, yes. Uh, go ahead, that after that. Go ahead. Okay. No, go ahead. Um, you well, say what you finished. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. I uh, just wanted to say if anybody wanted to see what Danvers State Mental Hospital looked like before it was torn down, Stream the movie Session Nine. It's an absolutely excellent horror movie, but you get uh, they filmed it inside. Yeah, that's I took that from you today. Yeah, down. Session Nine. Yeah, yes. that's yes. a good. Session Nine okay. is great, and um, there's mm-hmm. a 1950 film called Home Before Dark that is also very good, and you see mm-hmm. the inside of Danvers in the 50s when it was still open and operating. So that's another good one. 
And Snake Pit, was it called Snake Pit? That was, that's an old one. Yeah, it was Olivia de Havilland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and, you, and, not... um, and next week, uh, Ramsey Campbell will be on at 8.30 in the morning no, uh, Central. Not next week. No, the week after. I'm sorry, the week after. Right, I'm not used to doing talking about that the week after. Okay, no. right. Um, okay. Ramsey Campbell, he's a acclaimed horror thriller writer, author, uh, and he's uh, from the U.K., and it's going to be a really good show. And that will also be on demand if you have to work. You can't be doing this at 8.30 in the morning so, yes, or 9.30 Eastern. Mm-hmm. And so it's always going to be out there. But he's very, mm-hmm. I, he looks like he's going to be a very interesting guest. He's, oh, um, he will he has be. a lot. He will be. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. It's going to be. And uh, Virginia and I and um, uh, Crystal Gauthier, we're going to be doing a show also, and I'll be putting that out. It's next week, and it's going to be on movies to books and uh, all about um, everybody thinking that their books should be movies, and maybe not, but maybe so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it'll be a very interesting show. And, again, thank you so much, Catherine. It's been a really yes, good show. Yes, thank you for coming on to our show. Yes, it was a great thank show. you really for good. having me. I appreciate it. Uh, and have a good night, everybody. And uh, you can reach me at michiganavenuemedia.com. There we go. All right. Good night, everybody. Okay. Good night. Thank you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.